Isaiah chapter 41, I'm going to begin in verse 14 and read down to verse 20. Isaiah 41, it says, Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, says the Lord. And your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I will make you into a new threshing sledge with sharp teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and beat them small and make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them. The wind shall carry them away and the whirlwind shall scatter them. You shall rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. The poor and needy seek water. But there is none. Their tongues fail for thirst. I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers and desolate heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will plant in the wilderness the cedar and the acacia tree, the myrtle. And the oil tree, I will set in the desert the cypress tree and the pine and the box tree together that they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. We've been looking at Isaiah And from chapter 40 and chapter 41 and chapter 42, the theme of these chapters are that we have been delivered. We have been set free. We have been released from bondage. We are set free. We learn in the New Testament by Jesus Christ. We are set free by God's salvation and greatness in chapter 40, verses 1 through 31. We are, we are now set free by God's power. And that is the same power that controls the nations, that orchestrates the past and the present and the future. God's inutterable, unmistakable ability to intervene in time and space in nations. And because he can intervene in civilization and nations, he can intervene in your life and in the life of your family. And we are set free in the next chapter from the captivity of sin and death. In chapter 42, verses 1 through 25. And we're going to encounter what's known as a series of four servant songs as we begin to explore this powerful subject of what it means to be set free. There was a great missionary in China named Hudson Taylor. And he was fond of saying that every great work of God has three unmistakable stages. Stage one, impossible. Stage two, difficult. Stage three, done. Because he knows the beginning from the end. And because he will work his work. He will do the impossible. And he will transform the difficult 
I know each and every one of you at some point in your life had someone look you in the face and say, you'll never change. And you might have said, with God, all things are possible. The worm that is the worm in verse 14 now has teeth. And by the way, that's one of the ways that you can tell a worm from a snake, huh? <laughs> you pick up the worm and you go, hey, are, are worms supposed to have teeth? This worm now is going to become a threshing floor. Israel, weak, limited, hurt, downtrodden. A worm will overcome the obstacles, and these obstacles are far greater than Israel herself with the help of the Lord. And that becomes a type and a picture for each and every one of us. That in humility and brokenness and dependence, when the problems in our life seem unsolvable, impossible, not not just impossible, but you now they move from impossible to difficult and God is now working the difficulty so that they will get done. Look what it says in verses 15 and 16. Behold, I will make you a new threshing sledge with sharp teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and beat them small and make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them. The wind shall carry them away and the whirlwind shall scatter them. You shall rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. In order to understand what we're talking about and where we've come from, remember, remember what we've already learned. Isaiah is writing over 150 years in advance that Israel, Jerusalem and Judah are taken captive by the Babylonians and they're whisked away and they're taken to Babylon and they're slaves and captives along the Euphrates River. Remember what we've already talked about. Their homes are destroyed. Their families are killed. Their temple is obliterated. And they have become a people who are captive. And because they have become a people who are captive, everyone looking from the outside in are looking at them going, you're done. Your life is over. Your ministry is over. Whatever plan and purpose God may have had for you, it's over with. But God says, no, I'm not through with you. I'm not done with you. Because guess what? Because of your rebellion and disobedience, I raised up the Assyrians from the north. And then because of your rebellion and disobedience, I raised up the Babylonians from the east. And yes, you've been disciplined. And yes, you've been punished. But I have unfinished business with you. Yes, Jacob, you are a worm, but you're, you're my worm. You're my little worm. And the worm is going to become a threshing sledge. Now, you've got to remember, a threshing sledge was a, a board that was penetrated with spikes. And those spikes would have been made of metal or basalt, bit, bits of stone. And you would tie pieces of rope to it and you would drag it threshing. And what he's doing is he's picturing Jacob as a threshing sledge with sharp teeth, the mountains and beat them small, the hills like chaff, you shall winnow them, the wind shall carry them. The wind becomes a type and a picture of the trials, the tribulations, the storms and the whirlwind shall scatter them. Here is the idea. 
there's going to be hardship and pain and further wars. And there's going to be shifting in time and space between civilizations and nations. But I am going to preserve you. By the way, have you seen the seat in the United Nations of Assyria? No. Maybe Syria, but not Assyria. Have you seen the seat at the table in the United Nations for Babylonia? No, because Babylon no longer exists. Nations come and nations go. They rise up and they fall. What God is promising here is in spite of the storms, in spite of the pain, in spite of the tragedy, I am going to preserve you. And you shall rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. Now, remember what we've learned in our Bible study. Every single passage in the Bible isn't about you. But every single passage in the Bible has an application for you. Because God has unfinished business with Israel... He is going to preserve them. And until God is through with you, until God is finished with you, until you've accomplished all of the plans and the purposes that God has laid out for you, in a very real way, you're bulletproof. Now, does that mean that we tempt the Lord? Do we throw ourselves in front of a bus going, okay, let's see if I really am bulletproof. It could very well be that that's the point where God is pretty much finished with you because you're a complete idiot. When he says, you shall rejoice in the Lord, the idea is that they will overcome and with praise they will glory in God once again. When it says, you shall rejoice in the Lord, remember, it is in the context of a future prophecy where you think your life is over with. And and I know that some of you have been in that deep, dark place of discouragement and depression. And it's so hard to rejoice in the Lord. It's so hard to sing the songs of the Lord. It's so hard to open up your Bible. And it takes every ounce of your willpower. And then you remember, God isn't through. God isn't finished. Israel will continue to exist. Israel will defy the odds. And look at verse 18. The poor and needy seek water, but there is none. Their tongues fail for thirst. I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers and desolate heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. It's interesting, the word the poor. Evyonim in the Hebrew, the needy or the afflicted, naim, the poor, the needy represent Israel in a state of affliction and poverty. So when he says the poor and the needy seek water, almost certainly in this context, it's speaking about 
the children of Jerusalem and Judah in their captivity and the affliction and the poverty isn't just physical or material. It would appear also that there is maybe what we would call a mental and an emotional and a spiritual component, because you can imagine that it isn't just the physical and the material deprivation. If any of you have ever struggled with depression, you know what it's like. It feels like an empty, cold piece of ice sitting on the surface of your soul and it numbs you and it numbs you and it numbs you and it's hard to get up in the morning and it's hard to do anything and it's hard to relate to your family. It's hard to relate to your husband or your wife or your children. These are the devout and the pious. These are the righteous who endure patiently, trusting in the Lord. And you might you might be wondering, well, wait a minute, if I am part of the pious and if I'm part of the righteous and if I'm part of that group of people that God has unfinished business with. And if God isn't through with me, then why do I feel so empty and why do I feel so bad and why do I feel so hurt and why do I feel so powerless? And the point becomes, guess what? Even in that empty, dark, lonely circumstance where there doesn't seem to be any spiritual refreshment whatsoever, where your tongue is spiritually thirsty, like a part, like have you ever had a dream where you were in a desert and you wake up and your tongue is stuck to the roof of your mouth and you feel completely dehydrated? In a physical sense and in a spiritual sense, that's exactly what the Lord is saying. God will provide for them as they suffer in exile and eventually they will return from their captivity so that even in the process of deprivation and pain and suffering, God is scooting you through the process. God will provide for them. And again, what's happening? And again, why is this happening? Remember what I said to you earlier. God is punishing Judah and Jerusalem. God is punishing his servant. Wickedness and rebellion had finally caught up with them. But God had unfinished business with his servant. The nation is chosen of God. They are a people in a dry land looking for water. They seek water. And so the picture that the poet Isaiah makes is of a group of people in the worst of circumstances. There's no water. The tongue faints for thirst. And the Hebrew is even poetic. If you read it in the original language, it's just two words. Ma'im. Wa'ayim. Ma'im is the Hebrew word for water. Wa'ayim. Water, it says in the, in the original language. And then it says, it is not. Water. It is not. It's that situation where you want joy and peace in your life. I want joy. There's no joy to be found. I want peace. But your life is filled with conflict. Raging turmoil. 
there's this thirst. The language describes a condition of profound, of desperate, of severe need. And in such a condition, here's the promise. God will hear their cry. God will hear the cry of his people. God will hear the cry of his people and their need. They will hear the cry of the people and their need. And here is the promise of God. He will answer. And that's part of the promise. Even when it seems like you're speaking to the darkness. Even when it seems like it's a lonely, empty room. God sees your tears. He knows your heart. He knows your circumstance. The people would be poor. They would be needy. They would be thirsty. But the Lord will hear their cry and hear their prayer. And the Lord will provide water where there was no water. The ultimate expression is found in salvation. Remember Jesus in the New Testament, he talks about if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me. Remember, Jesus said, come to me and out of your inmost being will spring rivers of living water. The emptiness, the wasteland, the parched circumstances of your life, the Lord will build a well inside of you. And all of a sudden, water will start to burst from the bottom of your heart and you'll start to be satisfied. And then in verse 19 and 20, it says, I will plant in the wilderness the cedar and the acacia tree, the myrtle and the oil tree. I will set in the desert the cypress tree and the pine and the box tree together that they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. There are seven trees that are mentioned. And the Lord, it says, I will plant in the wilderness. Remember, between the devastation and the destruction of Judah and Jerusalem, as you march east, as you go towards the river Euphrates and into the city of Babylon, the vast armies and the vast captives have decimated the land. It would be like this. Imagine, again, I've used this illustration before. Imagine you had a home in New Orleans. In the Ninth Ward or in St. Bernard Parish. And the hurricane comes and it destroys everything that you've ever known. And now the hurricane is gone. The sun is out. And it's shining. And you entertain the notion, I'm going to go back home. But you realize there is no home. And your neighbor doesn't have a home and his neighbor doesn't have a home. And if you go to the block over, they don't have homes and you go to the block on the other side and they don't have homes. And there are no schools and there are no markets and there are no gas stations and there is nothing. 
There is nothing so that even if you went home, you go home to nothing. But the Lord says, I'm going to take a circumstance where there is nothing and I'm going to make something. And the Lord plants the trees in the desert place. He creates a new Eden, a paradise, beautiful trees of fragrant wood provided for the feast of the tabernacles. And so we see multiple prophetic implications. The first prophetic implication is the children of Israel will return from Babylon. They will go to Jerusalem and they will rebuild Jerusalem because Jesus Christ has not yet been born. Jesus is now born. He lives his perfect life. He dies on the cross. He rises from the dead. He is rejected by his people. The 10th and the 12th legions of Rome come in and destroy Jerusalem. And now the children of Israel are scattered all over the planet once again. Is there going to become yet another time of renewal? The Bible says, yes, the Messiah will return. The Messiah will return and he will occupy the throne of his father, David. And in that celebration, they will celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles with their Messiah. The trees are fragrant and durable. Edits, a cedar. Shittah, an acacia. Hadas, a myrtle tree. Etz, Shemin, literally in the Hebrew, that's tree of oil. It could be the wild olive tree, which is different from the cultivated olive tree. In the Arabah, which is the desert places, the Lord places the cypress. It says Tidar, which is probably the hard oak. Tashur, a fir tree possibly. There, these are common trees in Syria and Palestine. But again, the whole idea is that it becomes a lush vegetation. By the way, since 1948, if you go on the website of the, 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 the state of Israel, as you go through the celebrations of the feasts of Israel, one of the celebrations that the citizens of Israel do every year is they plant trees. Do you realize since 1948, 50 million trees have been planted in Israel? I just came from California this morning and I was in the Ontario airport and they have a display of boxes. And when my wife and I were growing up, there was grove after grove after grove of grapefruit and orange and tangerine. There was grove after grove of pomegranates. There were trees everywhere. Now there's just shopping malls. In Southern California, we tore out the trees and we put in the mall. In Israel, the children of Israel, as they return in the middle of the desert, they plant trees. And by the way, since the mid 19th century, the ancient land of Israel was largely a swamp. And where it wasn't a swamp, it was a desert. And the people planted the eucalyptus trees in the swamp. You know what that did? The eucalyptus tree has this incredible property that when you plant it in a swamp, it absorbs the moisture and it creates a circumstance where the land can now be cultivated once again. And when God shows up in your life, 
He begins to plant the trees of life inside of you so that where there was emptiness and a desert place, you now become a person who bears fruit. Remember, that's what it even talks about in the New Testament. Jesus says that when he comes to you, he comes so that you can bear fruit. And so. The Bible says. That they may see. And know. And consider. And understand altogether. That the hand of God has done this. The Holy One of Israel has done this. How does a nation that's completely destroyed come back to life and experience a recreation? It can only happen by the hand of God. How can a life it's destroyed. How can a heart that's broken and empty? How can a life that feels like it's ruined be set free and restored and used again? The answer? The Lord can do this thing. That's part of the meaning of the passage of Scripture in the New Testament where it says in Corinthians 5.17, if any person or if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The word creation in the Greek language is a word that describes something that has never existed before and it comes into existence. It isn't the old you reformed. It's a brand new you in Christ. Those four verbs should be the net result as you read, consider, meditate, consume God's promises that they may See, number one, that they may know, number two, that they may consider, number three, that they may understand, number four. The writer is inviting you to look and understand and be blown away by what you are witnessing. He uses the nation of Israel as an illustration And then he wants to use you as an illustration of what a powerful God can do with a person that everyone else has given up hope on. And look at verse 20. Now God reminds them of the Lord's purpose to demonstrate his power, showing the people that he alone could free his people and meet their needs. Now, again, by 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 reminder of verse 14, Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you. And your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. And then again, look at verse 20 again. That they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. And the Holy One of Israel Has created it. Now again. Remember how the chapter began. God's power. Is displayed. His ability to set you free. 
is based on his ability to execute judgment on anyone and everyone who defies him in verses one through seven. Second, God's power to protect you and provide for you is found in verses eight through 20. And now we see the power of God to prove that he is the only true and living God. And now we've come full circle. Look at verse 21. Present your case, says the Lord. Remember, it's a courtroom scene. God has initiated the courtroom scene when he said, keep silent before me, approach the bench. Remember verse two, who raised up one from the east. He's talking about Cyrus the Persian, who he's going to call by name within a couple of chapters, the God who knows the beginning from the end. He has presented his case. And now he says, you present your case. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the king of Jacob. Do you know what he's doing? He is inviting the people to make their case for not trusting him, for not believing in him, for not embracing him, to continue in their rejection and rebellion. He says, okay, now you make your case. The Lord is issuing a challenge to those who love their idols. He's issuing the challenge for the people who want to continue to worship things that are the fabrication of their own evil imaginations. The Lord is issuing a challenge to everyone who loves idols and hates Israel. Remember, I said that not every scripture is about you, but every scripture applies to you. The same is true of your family and your friends. Or everyone who hates you. Because you love Jesus. There was a young man who's in our high school group and he's a, a biology. He, he, he loves biology and he's in a biology class. And he's come to that portion in his biology class where the teacher talks about evolution. And the young man is making his case of the inadequacy and the insufficiency of evolution. And the teacher issued him a challenge. Well, then write something that refutes evolution. I hope it's worth the paper that it's written on. Do you know what? That's the kind of stuff that our kids have to put up with. That's the kind of stuff that you're going to have to put up with. Okay, now tell me again. You're a Christian. Tell me, tell me again. You go to Calvary. What? Those people teach the Bible over there. They actually believe it's true. You don't believe it's true, do you? Um, yeah, I do. I do believe that it's true. What do you have to author? Monotheism, atheism, pantheism, panentheism, deism, finite godism, polytheism. Okay, then you tell me what you've got going for you. Why is there something rather than nothing? How do you explain existence? How do you explain how inorganic material turns into organic material? How do you explain the presence of life? And once you can explain the presence of life, how do you explain consciousness? How do you explain reality? Well, it can't be because the Bible's true. How do you explain wickedness? 
when we were praying in the back room, one of the members of the worship team prayed about this particular instance. Maybe some of you heard on the way over of the horrible shooting that took place in a in a, in a shopping mall and you hear these horror stories that come from the news and you ask and answer the question, is there any place safe? I believe that the Bible's true. What do you believe? I believe that mankind is getting better and better. We're getting brighter and brighter. Really? Seriously? <laughs> Look at verse 22. It says, let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Here's the, the God's challenge. Let them bring forth and show us what will happen. If your God is really God, then let him or her or it predict the future. That we may know that you are gods. It's Elohim. Yes, do good or do evil that we may be dismayed and see it all together. Oh, okay. so you're going to suggest that that there is something powerful, real, substantive, other than the God of heaven, the God of Israel, the God who, who reveals himself in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. Okay, let me see what your philosophy, what your religion, what atheism, pantheism, deism, finite godism, polytheism, intellectualism, rationalism, skepticism. Let's see what it has to offer by way of hope. Prove the gods, the idols, prove that your gods and your idols are real. Ask them to do incredible works, marvelous works. Prove that they can do anything. Prove that they can do anything good or bad. Fill us with amazement and tears. Okay, here's a statue of the Virgin. See those little red dots? Those are tears of blood. And what does that mean? I know some of you are thinking, what is he, where is he going with this? If you worship a statue that cries tears, if you worship anything other than the true and the living God, then you're going to fail. Isaiah calls on the idols to do something, anything, by their own power, by their own willpower. I I, I wish I would have brought a little statue up here so I could go, okay, here's the little statue. Okay, do something, statue. Say hello to the people. Blink. Do a decent impression. This is exactly what the true and the living God has done in human history. God says, I've proven that I am the true and the living God who occupies eternity. Remember, I am the one who told Adam and Eve that there would come a Messiah. Remember, I'm the one who told Abraham that he would have a son. Remember, I am the one who spared Isaac's life in Genesis chapter 2. Remember, I am the one who took Jacob and turned him into Israel. Remember, I am the one who preserved the line of Judah. Remember, I am the one who cared for David in the cave in the darkness of his circumstance. Remember, I am the one who fulfilled over 300 prophecies concerning the Messiah in the New Testament. 
Here's God's verdict. Look at verse 24. Indeed, you are nothing and your work is nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. This is God's way of saying, "Okay, give it your best shot and prove to me that you're God. Verse 24. I thought so. I thought so. You have nothing to offer. You have nothing to say. And you have nothing to do. And look what it says. He who chooses you is an abomination. Do you know what that means? Why would anyone in their right mind embrace anything other than the revelation that's given to us in the Word of God in the Bible? Why would anyone reject God? Why would anyone reject Christ? And some people might say, well, I've got questions. Well, yeah. And God's got answers. The stakes are high. The person who chooses an idol is an abomination. That means that they are detestable. Utterly worthless in God's sight. It's really important that you understand what's happening in verse 24. When he says, indeed, you are nothing. He's saying to the idols, I thought so. You're nothing. Your work is nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. Here is a biblical principle that you should underline and memorize. You become like the thing you worship. You become like the thing that you preoccupy yourself with. You become like the thing you trust. You become like the thing that preoccupies you, that you live for, that you die for. And in God's view, you become like them, detestable and utterly worthless. God's verdict shatters all hope and trust that people place in false philosophies and the wisdom of men. And then he offers proof at the end of the chapter. Proof that he's the only true and living God. Look what it says in verse 25. I have raised up one from the north and he shall come. Oh, at the beginning of the chapter, remember what it said? Who raised up one from the east? Well, I suspect in verse 11, he speak, or excuse me, in verse 2, again, he's talking about the Persian conqueror. But he's coming from the north and the east. And, and I want you to understand the visual circumstances if you're one of those kind of people who have maps in the back of your Bible and you go to the place where the Medes and the Persians live in, 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 uh, in the, what's, what's now modern Iran, they come from the perspective, if you will, from the north and the east. If you find yourself living in Jerusalem. And I think that that's interesting. From the perspective. I have raised up one from the north and he shall come 
from the rising of the sun, he shall call on my name and he shall come against princes as though through though mortar as the potter treads clay who has declared from the beginning that we may know and former times that we may say he is righteous. Surely there is no one who know, who shows. Surely there is no one who declares. Surely there is no one who hears your words. The first time I said to Zion, look, there they are. And I will give to Jerusalem one who brings good tidings. Here's the idea. Remember what I just challenged the false gods and the false idols to do? I am now going to do it. And in the next several chapters, he is going to name by name Cyrus. He's going to call him 180 years before he is born. Imagine you're living during the time of the pilgrims and a person stands up and says, I'm declaring to you right now that there's going to come a man and his name is Abraham Lincoln. And he is going to be born and he is going to become the president of the United States and nothing is going to stop it. And there's going to be a great civil war, but he's going to preserve the nation. Wouldn't you think that that's pretty stinking impressive? He is going to declare in advance that a king is going to arise. And that he is going to conquer that which seems unconquerable. No one can defeat Babylon. It just can't be done. But he will do it. There is no king and there is no kingdom that will be able to stand in his way. And it says and then former times that we may say he is righteous. Surely there is no one who shows. Surely there is no one who declares. Now, here's what we know. Cyrus the Mede is not righteous. But there is a king who is righteous. There is a king who is coming. There is a king who is coming, who is righteous, and the combined armies of the nations of the earth will not be able to prevent Jesus from coming. Imagine that there was a global effort. Not to try and do something about global warming. But there was a global effort to prevent Jesus from coming back. Think it could happen? No. Look what it says at the end of verse 27. And I will give to Jerusalem one who brings good tidings. Now, remember when this is written, this is written 700 B.C., 180 years before the Babylonian captivity and over 700 years before Jesus is born. But Babylon is going to capture them. They will return. A Messiah is going to come. Jerusalem is going to be restored. And I will give to Jerusalem one who brings good tidings. You have to understand something. Jerusalem's a trash heap when this was written. It's a dump. It's a pile of ruins. No one had any expectation that it could ever come back to life. 
Sometimes you find yourself in a situation where you feel like your life is an ash heap and your circumstances are a pile of ruins and nothing good can ever come out of your life ever again. And that's because you don't understand God's plan for you and His purpose for you, His love for you. You don't understand why God has placed that little boy and that little girl in your life. You don't understand why God has placed you in the ministry. You don't know why God has given you those grandchildren to pray for. You don't know what God has for you. You don't know the person that you're going to meet. You don't know that person you're going to pray with. You don't know that God's unfinished business is going to set in motion a series of circumstances that will glorify him and expand the kingdom of God. Cyrus will come from the north after he's conquered the Medes. Cyrus the Great. By the way, he's a follower of origin, a religion known as Zoroastrianism or Zarathustra. And I'll talk more about that when we come to the prophecy of Cyrus. But in the religion of Zoroaster, Cyrus would have been taught to recognize and call upon the name of the Lord Jehovah and it says, and he shall come against princes as though mortar, as the potter treads clay. God's prophecy is that this king will arise and nothing will stop him. And so God makes his case by presenting the fact that only he knows, knows the future. And the Lord stresses three irrefutable facts. Number one, God alone has the power to control the past the present and the future. God is in control of history and he will prove his power by raising up Cyrus of Persia to conquer the world at that time and to free Israel. Yes, as shocking as this is sounding, ancient Iran was going to be used to liberate Israel. Think about the strange twist of events that's taking place right now as Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, the president of Iran, pounds his pulpit and says, we will destroy Israel. We will destroy Israel. We will destroy them and drive them into the sea. Is that going to happen? <laughs> Can you imagine Mahmoud Abinajab taking his tiny, tiny little fist and waving it. It sounds like Alvin and the Chipmunks. We're going to take Israel and we're going to try to make it And the Lord is in heaven laughing. Just like Alvin and the Chipmunks. Instead of saying Alvin, though, he's going. Mahmoud, get, get with it. Number two, God alone could predict the historical rise of Cyrus and that the Persian king would carry out God's judgment upon the nations and free God's people from their Babylonian captivity. And again, look at chapter 13 again and um, at the beginning of, of chapter 41. No one else could ever make predictions that revealed the name of the coming ruler more than a century before his birth. No one else in heaven or earth could even hint that such a thing could take place, much less occur. 
And number three, God alone could predict the messenger would proclaim the good news. The fact that his people would be set free from their captivity and return to the land of promise. When Isaiah wrote these words. The captivity hadn't even happened. The destruction hadn't even taken place. The reason why this becomes important is because secular scholars reading this say, this can't be. Somebody other than Isaiah must have written this book. Well, why do you say that? No one knows the future. And the whole point of the argument is that the God who occupies eternity knows the past, the present, the future. He saw you before you were born. He saw you when you were growing up. He saw you through elementary school. He saw you make the little hand plate. He saw you make it through elementary school barely. He saw you go through junior high school. He saw all of the ridiculous things that you said and did when you were in high school. He saw it. He saw that husband, that wife. He saw those children and grandchildren. He sees your hair turning gray. He sees your skin starting to wrinkle. He sees every moment of every day until the final curtain is drawn. He knows the beginning from the end. The Lord looks around the courtroom. He waits for a response from the idolaters. Hinduism, make your case. Islam, make your case. Atheism, make your case. Every false philosophy, every evolutionary theorist, every person who tries to create a world in which God doesn't exist and you don't have to be accountable to him. And look at verses 28 and 29, for I looked. And there was no man. I looked among them. But there was no counselor. Who when I asked of them could answer a word. Indeed they are all worthless. Their works are nothing. Their molded images are wind and confusion. They are empty. They are useless. Look what it says. They are empty. They are useless. They are worthless. They have no substance. They're as empty as the wind. All false religions, the Lord declares, are smoke and mirrors. So the next time the person says to you, you know, all religions are pretty much alike. You can say... No, there's only one religion that declares the revelation of God, the beginning from the end. We all worship something. We all worship something. We either worship the Lord. Or we worship ourselves, Or we worship someone else. Or we worship material possessions. Or we worship some false or failed philosophy. No one is exempt from worship, by the way. 
No one who says, hey, you know what? I don't worship anything or anyone. They're lying to you. They worship their own rebellion. They have faith in intellectualism and rationalism. Trust me, I think that faith is rational. But rationalism is not faith. Even the atheist who denies the Lord's existence gives his or her heart to something. We worship something. We commit our life to something. We focus our energy on something. We focus our devotion and ambition on something. And you know how you know what it is? There's a simple test that you can use to figure out what it is that you really worship. It's what you think about when you get up in the morning. It's what you live for throughout the day. It's what you struggle for, work for, preoccupy yourself with. It's what you go to bed at night thinking about and dreaming about and wanting. And if that's something other than the Lord Jesus Christ, then you need to reassess what's going on inside of your heart. Only the Lord is to receive our devotion and worship, not our government, not our family, not even our ministry, not our church. We're not to focus on fads or impressive homes or wearing the latest styles or securing more wealth or more property or investing in the future. And by the way, it's not wrong to have a nice house. It's not wrong to have a retirement plan. It's not wrong to take your care of your kids. It's not wrong to have a health plan. None of that is wrong. It just simply becomes wrong when it is the most important thing in your life. We should never put boyfriends or girlfriends or wives or husbands or children or friends before the Lord. Not relaxation, not comfort. Anything or anyone that we pick before the Lord is an idol. It's the Lord who set you free. It's the Lord who liberates you. It's the Lord who preserves you. It's the Lord who guides you. It's the Lord who ministers to you. It's the Lord. I'm going to have the worship team come up and we're going to sing a couple more songs. We're going to have communion. I'm going to have the ushers come up. And while they're coming up, let's just have a a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray for that person who may or may not have found comfort and hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. They've believed so many things. Lord, they ask the question, what's the meaning of human history? And Lord, we know that for the atheist, there is no ultimate meaning. And there is no God to know. Because the atheist believes there is no God. Lord, we know that there are people who believe that God is all or that God is in all or that God is a distant creator. Or that God is a God, but he's limited and he can't reach down and he can't save me. Or that there are many gods. Or there's only one God. A triune God, the maker of everything who is real, the God who's created 
everything out of nothing. The God who created his signature masterpiece. Human beings. Lord, we know that the worship of God is the beginning of knowledge. Lord, we know that God is the basis for all truth. And Heavenly Father, we know that history, history is the drama God has created for His glory and for our good. Lord, I pray that in that drama, in the reality of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, that we would come to fully appreciate it. Lord, we know that only through a relationship with Christ can we experience reality. And so, Lord, I pray for that person who's been struggling with idolatry. Lord, I pray that they would cast down their idols. Give us clean hands. Give us a pure heart. Heavenly Father, if there's someone here who doesn't have a right relationship to you, with you but needs to, I just pray for them now that they would open up their heart to Jesus. Lord, I pray that they would pray this simple prayer. Lord Jesus, I know that you are real. Come into my life. I know that you died on the cross for my sin. and You rose from the dead for my forgiveness. So that I could know you and love God and have a real relationship with God. And I want to trust you with every fiber of my being to be my Lord and my Savior. In Jesus' name.